Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm George Ackle, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Patrick Scott. We got a great show planned for you, and I'm, I'm really excited. This is part two of the banking crisis. If you haven't heard part one, you can go back and listen to that. Our transistor feed is at Wall Street Pod on Twitter. I know that Patrick and I, when we did part one last week, there was an expectation for us, and I think a lot of other people, that the UBS and Credit Suisse and SVB, those were kind of the, the beginning steps, the first dominoes to fall. And we haven't really seen the next domino to fall yet. That's why I think this week we don't really have anything too new, although we will talk about Credit Suisse, UBS, and and what went on there. Yeah, it's kind of surprising. There has been almost no major activity in the past week when all of those uh, big things happened in the same like few days in the span of a few days there are a couple new things that are more of the the policy side of things so the house called for new regulations on mid-sized banks of course svb was considered a mid-sized bank even though it was one of the top 15 largest banks in addition president joe biden calls for tougher penalties for executives who are responsible for these types of events and patrick i don't like to be cynical but there were regulations imposed after 2008 And you're talking about Lehman Brothers, so we can kind of see the lead up to that and why that was a bad crisis. Right. And these rules were much tougher than we're seeing today, and they were supposed to prevent anything like this from happening again. But I think it goes to show how human nature is really unchanged. When companies know they're going to get bailed out, when when businesses know they're going to get bailed out, I don't know why you wouldn't take that risk. Yeah, I see what you mean. Also, I, I saw data that came out within the last week that small banks saw a decrease of $109 billion in deposits since the SVB crash, whereas large banks have seen an increase of $120 billion worth of assets. And some of the reasoning uh, behind why we haven't seen more small banks fall, you'd, you'd kind of expect there's been little, not mini runs, but you know people have been withdrawing money from the banks. I think it's the government's willingness to lend money to these smaller banks, and we haven't gotten too much into that but a lot of lending has taken place from government is that the same reason why the bigger banks have sort of gotten more money made more money i don't think made more money is the right term but i think been a lot more stable and as far as like stock prices they have gone up because people who are worried that oh are these banks going to make it they're confident that the government will either a bail them out if they do go under but probably be more importantly that they'll always have the opportunity to borrow from the government if there were to be a run on the bank now we move on on to something that's a little more foreign so why are we talking about it on the show and we'll reveal to that that to you guys later but Credit Suisse that's a Swiss bank that you probably heard got bought by UBS and why did it go under so they've been rife with problems really since the Great Recession and never really got back on their feet but a lot of people point to 2019 there was a spine scandal that went on I didn't look too far into that uh, the chairman broke quarantine during COVID-19 which I think is funny apparently it was very newsworthy I think in the US that was uh, somewhat common that you had high-level officials partying and, and bankers partying but I guess it's Switzerland there's a, a different set of conduct there mm-hmm. and then a loss of a billion dollars on a single business failure and In the fall of 2022, depositors pulled $119 billion. So that was before the SVB thing happened. And that really led to their their eventual downfall. And then the Credit Suisse uh, and other U.S. bank failures, they really spelled the end for the rest of the depositors in Credit Suisse uh, pulling out their money. But even before that, it was kind of funny. This Saudi firm 
said they were going to lend $45 billion to Credit Suisse to help them with near-term liquidity or cash on hand at short-term asset concerns. And Credit Suisse came out and said, hey, we were in a bad spot, but now we have these guys, these Saudis on our side who are going to lend us money. But in fact, there was some regulatory thing and there was reasons why they couldn't actually do this deal. So Credit Suisse basically just revealed that they were in a really bad spot. They said they solved it. It eventually didn't work that they solved it. And because of that, investors and depositors lost a lot of faith. So this had kind of been building up a little bit? This had been building up, yeah. I think there was a general consensus that Credit Suisse could fail or eventually be bought out by someone. It was just really expediated by the SVB crisis. Now, why this is important to the U.S. investor is because of something called AT1 bonds. And most of our audience probably hasn't heard about them. Even I think a lot in the investing community haven't heard about AT1 bonds or what they are. But essentially, they're bonds that pay out a very high rate of interest. And this is because they're convertible to equity when capital levels fall below a requirement in a business. So let's dissect this. Banks need to have a certain level of assets to liability ratio in their business. Assets to liabilities. So liabilities as in, does that include debt? Yeah, that would include debt and bonds, of course, are a form of debt. They have to require to pay the bondholder. So in these scenarios, when the liabilities to assets ratio, when there's too many liabilities and not enough assets, they can actually get rid of liabilities by converting bonds, and then it goes off the balance sheet as a liability. Again, that's why I mentioned that they pay out such a high rate of interest, is because normally if they're going to do this, it's because their stock price has deteriorated. Interesting part is that banks are really penalized heavily for holding these this type of product. And from like a regulatory standpoint, they're considered very risky assets, so they can only have like a small percentage of these very risky assets. A majority of the AT1 bonds, especially in Credit Suisse, were held by Swiss pension funds. And Swiss pension funds in particular, they aren't penalized for holding these types of bonds. There's not really a process to do that. So they held a lot of these bonds, which did well because they were high yielding in the short term. However, the $17 billion of these AT1 bonds, they were wiped completely out, which is weird because they weren't converted into stock stockholders got 76 cents a share and if they weren't converted into stock you would think okay normally bondholders get paid out first in bankruptcy or in this case any type of liquidation or a buyout proceedings they're the first ones to get paid they didn't get paid in this case and that really shook a lot of bondholders for u.s firms like ubs or other places and the credit default swaps went enormously up in value and you're probably wondering, Patrick, I am. what is a credit default swap? And I think this is really important because if we do see more bank failures, it's going to be talked about a lot in the news and people are going to tell you a lot of different things about them. So we're going to try to keep you guys informed and explain at a very basic level what credit default swaps are. So we mentioned how SVB was disincentivized from hedging risk. U.S. Treasuries, you're normally going to buy calls or put. Those are options where you can pay if the U.S. bond is trading at $100, you can pay someone 50 cents or there's ways that you're going to calculate how much that, that actually costs, but 50 cents. And that gives you insurance that over the next year, if it drops below $90 or $95, you can sell at $95 no matter what. So it's insurance. You know that you've locked in $95. And 
Credit default swaps are just a more extreme version of this sort of thing, and they offer investors the opportunity to protect against worst case scenarios. And I realize that most of our listeners, again, aren't going to be using this as necessarily a strategy in their portfolio. It's very rare that you're actually going to use this unless you work in the banking industry. So why am I even talking about it? Well, Patrick, I think it's good to have expectations and, and kind of have reasonable expectations. I think of it kind of like... Uh, sports when you see how much a team is favored by. I'm not going to do anything with that information. If the Packers are 10-point underdogs, I'm probably not going to hold my breath they're going to win. I might not even watch the game. I might do something more productive with my time. Okay. So yeah. in, a, in a similar way, I think it's really important to be informed about uh, what the financial system is doing and seeing the tools that you have to see that. So here are the very bare-bones mechanics behind credit default swap. So let's say you have $10,000 worth of bonds in a food truck called Ed's Egg Rolls. And you don't mind losing a bit of money. There's no investment that you can't lose money in. But you couldn't bear the thought of losing all 10000 of your dollars. That's your college fund. You need that for, I don't know, whatever you do with your money. Yeah, exactly. So I think Ed's Egg Rolls is a fantastic company. I think it's stable. I think it won't go away. And what I do is I sell you a five-year insurance policy. So the first year, I'm going to require a little more upfront just to make sure that you're credit worthy, that you're really committed to this contract. But after that, it's going to be around $175 a year, which is locked in. You have to pay that for every year for five years. And you're guaranteed your $10,000 no matter what happens. So you, you might not be happy if Ed's Egg Rules goes bankrupt and you only get $10,000 after investing $10,000 in, no return on investment. Right. Whereas if you held the bond to maturity and it didn't go under, you would get that amount plus interest, but at least you have $10,000. And when Ed's Egg Rules does fail, I have to pay you $10,000. Does that mean that I've lost all my money? And the answer to that is no, because bondholders are generally paid first in the liquidation process. So basically, you can sell me the right to those bonds in the liquidation proceedings, $10,000, no matter what. If I can manage to get three or $4,000 out of that when he goes bankrupt because I force him to sell his food truck and give a percentage to me, I can do that. But that's off your plate. You don't have to worry. You have the $10,000. And the example I used is actually what it would cost to insure against a UBS bankruptcy right now. So why is this important? If we can know what the perceived net present value is of liquidation. So if UBS liquidated today, what percent of their money would get paid out to bondholders? Is that 30%? Is that 50%? What percent would the bondholders receive? We can take, with that, we can take the price of the insurance, whatever you have to pay me, in your case, it was $175. And using like mathematical models, you can find an implied right that the business will fail. It's kind of like like a high deductible health insurance where they say, okay, we'll pay for accidents or you know medical conditions over $500,000. They can't tell you like, oh, what individual person is gonna need that, but they can say, hey, based on your situation, based on all the information we have, maybe there's a 1% chance that this person within the next five years is going to suffer an injury that's going to cost over $500,000. It's a very similar logic, but as investors, it can really tell us the stability of the financial system that we invest in. 
Okay. And now that we have this in mind, and credit default swaps were a huge tool that were used in 2008. We're not going to get as in-depth. 2008 will definitely have its own episode in and of itself. But I think with the banking stuff we're seeing now, it was a great opportunity to talk about Lehman Brothers. So I'll send it over to our history professional, our, our staff expert, Patrick Scott. Uh, that's me. All right. So with the Lehman Brothers, um, to give some context and a little bit of history of the company, it was started in the 1840s by um, German immigrant uh, Lehman Brothers as a dry goods store in Montgomery, Alabama. They eventually joined the cotton trading business as well, which was booming with uh, slave labor pre-Civil War. And the business uh, eventually moved to New York City after the war and became an investment bank. So George, can you explain real quick what an investment bank is? They do a lot of things, but how it differs from a bank is they provide some unique services. So one of them is mergers and acquisitions. They have people coming to them saying, I want to sell my business. And they go and try to find partners who will buy that from those people. In addition, they also work with high net worth individuals. They do investing. Some of them even have investing platforms. And they also underwrite stuff, which to define underwriting would be someone sells them shares of their company. All the shares of their company or a large portion of shares of their company and then they make a profit by trying to sell those shares at a higher price and this is before the stock is publicly traded so it's like a private deal okay so later on around 1906 the uh, lehman brothers shifted from a commodities house um, which is a firm that focuses on commodities um, like agriculture precious metals oil etc to a house of issue and more of the investment bank features that we mentioned before doing debt underwriting securities aiding in mergers and acqui acquisitions and things like that in the 90s and 2000s uh, the lehman brothers joined in the business of mortgage origination and that is loaning out funds for interest of course to people who want to uh, buy real estate so mortgages also post the property itself as collateral meaning that if a loan can't be paid off the lender can take the property lehman brothers grew in the subprime mortgage particularly which will be key for understanding its demise in 2008 and a sub subprime mortgage is a mortgage given to someone with a low credit score and a low credit score showing that someone isn't very good at being able to consistently pay off their debts and their subprime mortgages became a huge part of their business and they eventually had 680 billion dollars in risky subprime mortgages and they only had 22 billion in capital to back this up capital being cash and assets that a company has on hand to use think about this for a second most of your business is held up in loans to people who aren't very good at paying you back and you don't have as much cash as you need to hedge that investment that is quite a risk why do you think they think they just didn't spot this do you think they didn't think it was a risk i think it's a lot like the treasuries that we talked about last week with SVB, it was a chance to make more money because they, they issued mortgages to bad creditors or the, these people who couldn't pay back the debt. But because a lot of other people wouldn't take them on, they could charge exorbitantly high rate for mortgages. Of course, it doesn't matter if you charge them a 3,000% interest rate if they don't pay it back. Right. So they would eventually have to take the property instead as collateral? Yeah. So in 2007, Lehman closed the subprime mortgage firm that it had bought earlier. They believed it was going to be on a downturn due to poor market conditions in the mortgage space. Um, however, it still had a large investment in subprime mortgages. So they were definitely not out of uh, that side of things just yet. Then in 2008, Lehman actually turned a profit while other investment banks 
like Citigroup lost billions. Lehman stock sh soared uh, 46% after the announcement. And in 2008, the housing bubble popped and real estate prices plummeted along with Lehman stock as Lehman ended up losing billions. So George, there's a bit of, um, I guess, unexplored gray area here. Can you explain the connection between the drop in the house housing prices and the losses of Lehman due to subprime mortgages? Essentially what happened with Lehman is let's say, Patrick, you have a loan for a, a million dollars. I give you a million dollars to buy a house and you spend that to buy the house and that housing bubble crashes. You're not able to pay off your house. You're not able to make payments on your house. So what do you do? You move out of the house, you, you leave because you've lost your job, you can't make the payments, that sort of thing. Then as we mentioned before, Lehman Brothers, they have a right to repossess the house. You've only made $10,000 in payments, so they're up $10,000. However, the house that they loaned to you for a, the money to you for a million dollars is now only worth $600,000. So they've just taken a $390,000 bath. Oh, okay. I see. After this happened, there were numerous leadership shakeups as well, um, including the CFO, Aaron Callan, who, George, guess where she went to go after? I honestly don't know. Credit Suisse. No way. That's Indeed. crazy. So after layoffs started and uh, Lehman's stock price fell to $7, the company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. George, can you explain what that is really quick? Chapter 11, you're going to be looking for someone to buy your things. The creditors can't demand their money immediately. It basically gives you more time so that people don't, they don't want people to panic. You fire sale your assets for le way less than they're worth. And a fire sale is sort of like we're closing, we're selling everything at a super discounted price. Is that right? There's such a condensed timetable that if you don't sell it, if you have something worth a million dollars and it only sells for $500,000 or you can only sell it for $500,000 at that specific moment, you're forced to sell it. Okay. On September 17th, 2008, the New York Stock Exchange delisted Lehman Brothers, so it was off the market at that point. Lehman was eventually divided up and sold to Barclays, the British investment bank, and Nomura Holdings from Japan. And Lehman Brothers goes down as uh, one of the largest business uh, or bank failures of all time. Yeah, it's interesting. It's actually technically not considered a bank failure. As we mentioned, investment banking does more than normal banking, which I, I really couldn't find anything or I don't understand the classification. But yeah, technically it's not a bank failure. So when we say SVB was the biggest, second biggest bank failure of all time, Lehman Brothers actually doesn't count into that equation. Okay, so biggest invest one of the biggest investment firm failures would that be more adequate? Yeah, I think that'd be adequate. And at, at its height, Brothers was worth over sixty billion dollars. So this is a huge firm compared to SVB, which was I believe twenty billion at its height. So okay. it's it's magnitudes bigger than that. Oh wow! All right. So George, are there any other parallels that you see between Lehman and SVB or Credit Suisse? I think. The easy one, maybe the cop-out, is risk-taking was just unnecessary. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, you're, you're earning great rates on these subprime mortgages, but they figured that if, oh, if we diversify enough, we can make a ton of money and not worry about it. And I think that's a misconception in, in investing. If you invest in 100 terrible companies, but you diversify you're still going to get terrible results. There's plenty of mutual funds, plenty of money managers who have done a terrible job investing, even though they invest in a bunch of companies. Okay. And we've been talking about risk a lot, Patrick. So you know who I had to quote. 
Um, Jim Carrey. No. The only person that we talk about on the show pretty much, Warren Buffett. Jim Carrey was close. Um, but risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And I think that's the inherent thing that we, we might forget about is that, oh, risk comes from these manipulative people who are only mi- in it for the money. But in reality, it's people who don't know what they're doing or they don't take the time to, to figure out, okay, what happens if interest rates go up on the treasuries like we talked about last week with SVB or what happens if a certain percentage of people default on their mortgages as we saw with Lehman Brothers or, or in the case of Credit Suisse, what happens if a Saudi group isn't allowed to, to give us $45 billion of emergency funding? Right. They don't really have a plan B, and I think that's important to have in investing. To expect the best, prepare for the worst. Nice. However, that's that seems a little negative, Patrick. On the same token, successful investing is about managing risk. It doesn't mean we have to re- avoid it altogether. So if we're able to know what our risk tolerance is, all of us aren't banks. So we don't have to worry about paying back depositors, having having the liquidity we need. And it's not saying we can't make investments that'll lose 20 or 30% in a really bad recession. It's okay, what are we going to do if that happens? Do we have the money we need to manage whatever lifestyle we hope to to keep through that time or need to, you know, meet our needs? And over time, if you're great at managing risk, you will be a great investor and probably better than most people who do it for a living. And isn't there an opposite side of risk too? Like the more risk you have, the more volatile it is. So like you could lose a lot of money, but you could also make a lot of money. There's Yeah, you don't want to confuse it. You don't want to say, oh, I'm going to take on this really risky investment just for the sake of it being risky because there must be a big reward. I think some people can use those things. However, if there is something with a lot of risk, you might be like, okay, there's a lot of risk here, but there also could be a lot of reward on the other side. It's a balancing act. If it's a sacrifice you're willing to make for the potential big payoffs, then it's definitely, sounds cliche, a risk worth taking. We really thank you for joining us this week. Me and Patrick, Patrick and I, George and us, George and, wait, no, that doesn't sound right. Patrick and I, we had a great time uh, talking to you guys about the bank failures. Next week, we're going to do an exciting episode. We're doing the crypto episode next week. So if I were you guys, I wouldn't want to miss that. We're bringing in our first guest ever. So make sure to stay tuned to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.